I'm Brad Myers. Uh, It's good to be with you here again this morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 110. We're going to be picking up a bit of where we left off when I wasn't able to join you four weeks ago. It's good to be back with you. Uh, Our son Elijah was born, obviously, four weeks ago. Um, I'm fully awake, I assure you. Well, I'm mostly awake, I assure you of that as we walk through this. But thank you for all of those encouraging notes and texts and things we got. Everything's doing well. Jenna's doing well. Elijah's doing well. Uh, We're excited to be back here again this morning. I also want to welcome you if you're not joining us um, regularly, but you're joining us just for the first time, and say thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part of worship. If you forgot your Bible, one of the things you're going to absolutely need this morning is we're going to be jumping around to a few different texts, is you're going to need a Bible open and on your lap here this morning. If you don't have one, don't worry about it. You can get one at the information desk outside of the red door. We'd encourage you to grab one of those and open it up, and it's good to be back. I want to be say thank you to all the men who preached for me, both on short notice and with a little bit of longer notice as I was out of town, or not out of town, but out of commission here these last few weeks. Hopefully you can find Psalm 110 in your Bibles. Uh, But I've got something for us to consider in this morning. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the incline. I don't know if this name rings a bell. The incline is a hike located near Manitou Springs in Colorado. I think I've got a picture of it here real quickly. Could you throw that slide? That that is what the view of the incline looks like. And I, I say hike. But the truth is, it's really more of a climb. Uh, The incline is only about a mile-long hike outside of Manitou Springs, um, but it consists of 2,744 stairs, railroad-tile stairs that go one after the other straight up the side of this mountain that was carved out where they used to have a railroad uh, with a, a rail car that would take people up to the top of the mountain. In the course of those 2,700 stairs, you'll climb about 2,000 feet in elevation, which if you do the math in your head is, you know, eight to nine inches per step going up the side of this mountain. The average grade is about 41 degrees, with the steepest grade being 68 degrees. It's quite the climb. It's quite the climb. I first encountered this hike the summer after my freshman year of college while in Colorado on a summer leadership program. And I remember standing at the base of this mountain, again, like like all college students do, three days after I got to this new elevation in Colorado, thinking, that's what we're going to climb. We were brilliant. And I remember standing at the base of this mountain, staring up the side of this, and just overwhelmed by the magnitude of what I was going to attempt to climb over the course of the next few hours. The reason I bring this up is I feel that same sense of awe and magnitude as we stand before Psalm 110 here this morning. The only about, or only seven verses long, Psalm 110 represents one of the most theologically rich and biblically significant passages in the whole of Scripture, in my opinion. Particularly as this psalm relates to biblical theology or the themes and stories of redemptive history that's displayed throughout the whole story of the Bible. Psalm 110 represents David's meditations on significant Old Testament stories and themes and motifs. It is one of the most, or is the most referenced Old Testament chapter in the entirety of the New Chapter or the New Testament. By my best guess, alluded to or quoted at least 30 times in the New Testament. The connections range from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, tying together these incredible themes highlighting two of the most prominent themes in the entirety of Scripture, the motifs of priests and kings. I don't believe it's hyperbole to say that in some real sense, Psalm 110 functions like a linchpin in the narrative of Scripture. 
tying the Testaments together, tying these themes together and showing their fulfillment in Christ. So, as we approach Psalm 110, it is with much trepidation staring up the side of this enormous mountain that we begin our climb. Would you read with me Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7? Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for the chance to be here this morning. We're thankful for this cool environment on this blisteringly hot day. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would keep our minds focused. Lord, that you would prepare our hearts for the truth that Psalm 110 describes. This incredible meditation of this King David who came years before us as he considered incredible realities, some of which would be fulfilled and found in the person and work of Christ. We've sung about some of those realities. We've sung about Christ as our King, Christ as our Lord, and we're thankful for that this morning. We praise you for the chance to come together, to worship you, to lift up your name, to rightly attribute the worth that you have. Father, we pray that as we study this, that you would guide our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you would prepare us, that you would give us understanding, and that you would press those truths into our hearts and minds so that they would change the way we go out from this service, the way we act in the world this week. Lord, impress upon us the incredible realities of Christ that we see here in Psalm 110. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was with us last, we've taken quite the journey over the course of this summer as we've examined Christ's life through these messianic psalms and a number of different ones. We've gone from his perfect life, his betrayal, and his crucifixion at the hands of the Jews and Romans. We've seen his death, his burial, and his resurrection three days later. We've been reminded of his ascension and his return to heaven as the Lord of creation and the King of glory. Then over the last few weeks, even as I've been gone, we've longingly anticipated his ultimate millennial reign, his final marriage to the church before culminating in an expression of greatness and worship in Psalm 145. Now this week's psalm was intended to transition us from Christ's past work to his current and future work, the anticipation of what he will do soon. Unfortunately, as most of you know, my son Eli put a bit of a kink in that plan when he chose to arrive two weeks before his due date. Or rather, God changed my plan. At first, I confess I was frustrated by this shift in my chronological progression of the Messianic Psalms that I had spent so much time trying to craft to put together for us as a church. But over the course of the last week, I believe I've begun to appreciate God's timing in all of this. As Psalm 110 feels like the perfect way to wrap up our study on the Messianic Psalms this summer. Though admittedly, it's going to function a bit more like a postscript than like the transition I had intended for it to be at first. But I think you'll appreciate it by the time we're done walking through it. 
Let me show you what I mean. Psalm 110 isn't the overly difficult to structure to figure out the way it works. It breaks into essentially two parts. Each part is led off by an oracle and followed by an action of God. So there's a declaration and there's an action then taken. And then the second part, there's another declaration and an action taken. Oracle number one, I've entitled, The Lord Says. We're going to see that in verse one, a declaration that God makes. That's followed up by an action that God takes and the Lord sends in verse two and three. That's part one of Psalm 110. The second part begins with another oracle, oracle number two, as the Lord swears, as he takes an oath. We'll see that in verse four. And then he follows that up with action in verses five through seven. We'll see the Lord shatters. The Lord says, the Lord sends, the Lord swears, and the Lord shatters. What begins with a promise of a victorious king ends with the promise of a perfect priest. So the imagery blurs a bit at the end, and you'll see that as we walk through. First, let's look at this first oracle. Let's see how this psalm begins. The Lord says, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is an interesting interchange. This is an interesting verse, and it takes time to slow down just a bit and try to consider the different audiences, the different groups involved in this. We've got a speaker, and we have an audience here. We have someone saying something, and it being said to someone. So we start off saying, who is this speaker? The Lord. The Lord. Now, you'll notice in your Bibles, the Lord there is four capitalized letters, L-O-R-D. This is Lord. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping God of Israel that is speaking here. God is saying something, and this isn't particularly surprising to us. We've seen this sort of thing consistently throughout the study of the Psalms, but what comes next is a bit more surprising. Who is he speaking to? Who is the audience here? He says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, my Lord here, the word is Adon from Adonai. It means master or Lord, one who is in charge of or one who has authority over. So, my Lord is the master of whoever wrote the psalm. You following with me so far? The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, someone who's in charge of the person writing the psalm. Well, who wrote Psalm 110? It starts out this way, a psalm of David. This is uncontested. David's authorship of Psalm 110 is uncontested among conservative biblical scholars. But David is the king at this time. The only person who David would rightly refer to as Lord is God. You see the predicament. The Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, says to my Lord, someone who is authority over David. Who are we talking about here? Now, okay, I know before you give me the Sunday school answer, which I know many of you are already waiting for, let's take a moment to consider the fact that this is actually not an easy question to answer. In the monotheistic understanding of God in the Old Testament, this is actually a very difficult question to answer, and let me prove my point to you. Flip to the right in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45. Keep a finger or keep a marker in Psalm 110. We're going to be jumping back to there again here in just a moment. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who were the biblical elites, the biblical knowledge elites of their day and age, they knew the Old Testament front and back. They could quote whole books of the Old Testament. How many of us can say we can do that? They knew their Bibles. There was no question of that. And Jesus stumps them with a question related to Psalm 110. Look at Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ? The Christ is the Messiah. Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. It would have been easy to understand from 1 Samuel. 
He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make or I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. We think this is a pretty easy answer, right? Because we can answer Jesus and we get 90% of the questions right in church, right? But the Pharisees, who thoroughly knew their Old Testament, when posed with what was David talking about here, were like, we have no idea. And furthermore, if you're going to ask that kind of questions, I don't want to talk to you anymore, Jesus. This is actually a really difficult question. If you're interested at all, uh, the parallel texts in Mark and Luke are Mark 12 and Luke 20. You can read about those this afternoon. It's the same scenario, same situation. And Jesus stumps the Pharisees with this question. This is actually a very difficult question to answer. And yet, in spite of the fact that this is a very difficult question to answer, an unlearned fisherman will answer this question later in the Bible. Peter, at Pentecost, answers this question succinctly. Keep turning to the right in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 2. We get the answer to this question where the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, were stumped through the inspiration of the Spirit, through the uh, giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, Peter comes up with the answer. Here in Acts chapter 2, you'll probably familiar, this is the story of Pentecost. After Jesus has returned to heaven, the disciples are waiting in a room, they're praying, and they're waiting for the Spirit to be sent. The Spirit comes upon them with tongues of fire, and they begin to speak the truth of the gospel in Jesus in languages they've never learned, and people assume they're drunk which that doesn't make sense to me at all, but whatever. Whatever you want to do to explain it. So Peter gets up and he says, these people are not drunk. In fact, they're just doing exactly what the prophet Joel prophesied that they would do. Look at verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. He goes on to explain what it means and all of these implications. He says, the spirit has come and that's exactly what you're seeing. Then he says, well, this is actually... The, the plan of God, the death of Jesus was the plan of God. He goes on, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by him. And then he quotes from Psalm 16, which we covered earlier in the summer, as far as Christ not being abandoned to Hades or God not letting his holy one see corruption. He details precisely what's happened so far that they have seen, and then he puts it into perspective for them so they understand it. Look at verses 29 through 36. He says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, this Jesus God raised up. Of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, to, or that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, quoting Psalm 110, he connects it, he says, this is the interpretation. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
He says, where the Pharisees were stumped by Jesus in this question of how could David refer to his Lord as being spoken to by the Lord, Peter steps in here by the inspiration of the Spirit and says, that's what Psalm 110 is all about. We're talking about Jesus. He says, this is Jesus who you crucified, who was buried and who was raised again three days later and is now ascended and sitting at his Father's right hand in glory. Because this is what Psalm 110 is all about. And I love this. I love this reality in Psalm 110 because over the course of the summer, most of our psalms have spoken of Christ in prophecy or they've spoken of Christ in what would be called an archetype, a king or someone who bears similarity to the fulfillment, the ultimate one in Christ. Not here in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, Christ is explicit. In Psalm 110, Christ is David's Lord. You see how that fits together? The Lord, David is writing, says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, sit at my right hand. That's how these relationships work. Now, obviously, if we have God saying something to Christ, we have to say the Father saying something to the Son, then what's being said is probably pretty important. What's the message of what he says? Look at verse 1. He says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I want to know both the position of Christ and the patience of Christ here. The position is sitting at the Father's right hand. The imagery here is of a king's court. The idea of a king sitting high on his throne and the one sitting right next to him is his right-hand man, one who acts on his behalf, one who speaks on his behalf, one who represents the king in every possible way. It's a position of honor. It's a position of authority and influence. And he says, sit at my right hand and wait here. Now, we want to know his patience as well. What is he waiting for? He says, sit until I make your enemies your footstool. This footstool imagery also would have been familiar to the Old Testament Jews. The idea of a victorious king placing his foot on the back of a a conquered foe. Saying, I have the ability to kill you. I have the ability to liberate you. I can do whatever I want because I have been victorious. It signifies victory. And here Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, is envisioned as waiting. This was a future reality for David as he's writing here in Psalm 110. It is a present reality for us today as Christ is seated at the Father's right hand awaiting the victory that God will bring about. This is precisely how Paul, when speaking of Christ, picks up this language when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do you remember that? Here a few months ago. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, Paul writes this. He says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You remember that when we talked about that passage and how the Son will then turn the kingdom back over to the Father for his glory. This is what he's talking about. Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, awaiting the total victory over his enemies. He's waiting at God's right hand for God to give him the go order. For the Father to say, now. Now is the moment. Now from there, from that oracle, Paul then shifts his attention to action. And we see from the Lord saying to the Lord sending. Once again, we get this twofold paradigm in the book of Psalms, how God interacts with his enemies and how God interacts with his people. First, we see his rule over his enemies. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This Lord here again is the four capital letters, Lord, the Yahweh sends, right? And it's envisioned, this authority, this sending is envisioned through a scepter, 
a scepter which would represent the authority and the, and the power and the might of this king. It's envisioning God's rule and God's authority being sent forth. In short, God sends his king to rule over his enemies. He says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Take charge of the kingdom that I have given you. But what is a military leader without his army? And in verse 3, we see the readiness of his army. Look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And we probably go, what? Anybody else get raise an eyebrow there just a bit and go, what, what is that talking about? The second part of this verse is historically very, very difficult to translate. You'll note that translations differ. Most agree on the first part. Your people will offer themselves freely. There will be an army that will willingly step forward to volunteer. But then the second part, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours, is difficult to translate. Like, that's how the ESV translates it. The NASB, which is a great translation, tries this way. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Did that help? <laughs> Still a little tricky. Okay, how about the NIV? It says, arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. A little bit better maybe, right? It's, it's difficult imagery. We get this imagery of being arrayed in splendor and power, this idea of eternal youth and vigor coming at the beginning or from the womb. The exact imagery is a little bit unclear. But what is very clear, regardless of how exactly you translate it, is there's two things that are very, very clear from this verse. The first, the king is mighty. The king here being sent is described as being displayed in holy garments, in power and might and eternal youthfulness. And the second thing is that his army is ready. Not only is the king mighty, but the army is ready. The army is prepared. They are enthusiastically waiting and serving this king in his campaign. The point, I think, of this first whole section is that God's eternal kingdom is led by a perfect king. He envisions this eternal kingdom being led by the perfect king, by the Messiah, who even now waits at the Father's right hand to be sent forth in victory. And that way it makes me think of that climactic scene in the third book of the Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the third book entitled The Return of the King. Boy, that seems irrelevant, right? If you're not familiar with the books, essentially what's going on is there's this king who has run away due to sign of shame on his family, and he's actually the rightful king of this city, Minas Tirith. But there's a steward sitting over the throne there, and he's kind of, he's kind of indiscreet. He's kind of incognito. And through the whole story, you're kind of waiting for the moment when Aragorn will take back the throne. And in the third book, there's this climactic moment where the city of Minas Tirith is under siege from the enemies of the evil one in Mordor. And, and the son, or the Aragorn, who's the rightful descendant, gets the, he gets returned this, this prominent sword that was broken, the sword of his father. That's this sign of his authority and his kingly reign. And right when everything seems lost and the city is about to fall under the invasion of the enemy, Aragorn comes running back into the scene, sword-waving, mighty army behind him, and decimates the enemy. Does that seem familiar at all? That's the picture here. That the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Christ is waiting at the Father's right hand. The victory is assured. He will come forth with the scepter and the mighty power of God and his enemies will be defeated once and for all. 
And it's one thing to assent to this intellectually, but do you actually believe this? This isn't some theoretical reality. This isn't some spiritualized situation that maybe we'll see victory in certain areas of our life. This is a literal king, Christ, sitting, waiting to come and literally destroy the kingdoms of the earth. That's a literal reality. Are you living in light of that reality? I know in a congregation this size, many of you will not have placed your faith and trust in Christ yet. You say, I don't know Jesus yet personally. I just want to encourage you with this reality. This isn't some theoretical thing. Christ is right now seated at the Father's right hand, and when he comes, he will come to conquer all his enemies. He will come to dish out the righteous wrath of God on each and every one of our sins. He will come to vanquish his foes. He will literally arrive as the king. It's easy to think when you're living day in and day out that nothing really is ever going to change. I got up this morning, I'll go to sleep tonight just like I got up yesterday and went to sleep last night. But at some point, history is going to come to a screeching halt as the king arrives back on the scene. And to think I can live my life regardless of the spiritual realities and the facts of life, that this doesn't really matter to me, religion is well and good for other people, that will come to an end when Christ comes back. Everyone will have an opinion on Jesus, and you don't want to wait until that moment to decide what your opinion is, because at that moment, it's going to be too late. But as believers, we're just as likely to live not in light of Christ's impending return as anyone, aren't we? It is so easy to fall into the trap of thinking things will just continue the way they have. We'll just continue getting up and going to bed. We'll just continue living here and going to church. National rulers will continue doing what they tend to do, regardless of what direction they are from different cities like Richmond. This is going to continue forever. This madness is just going to continue forever. And we live like Christ isn't coming back. Like the authorities and the problems we see today in the world, Christ won't fix when he returns. Are you tempted to live just like everybody else? Or do you live in fight of the fact that Christ is seated even now at the Father's right hand and he's coming back? Ultimately, we will all bow the knee to God's perfect king when he returns. And from there, the psalmist contains another oracle from God. He introduces the second half of Psalm 110 in verse 4 and introduces this idea of the priest. And we see that the Lord swears. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I love this verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is the guarantee of God's promise. God takes an oath here. He swears to do something. He says, I will do this. Now, whenever God says he's going to do something, he always does it. But God makes an oath here. And David is very clear to say, and he will not change his mind. David believed in the immutability of God, is what theologians call it, that God does not change his mind, that God does not change like we do. He is all-knowing, and he doesn't change what he's planning to do. So if he makes a promise, he will fulfill it. And think about it, if you combine God's immutability, his unchangingness, with God's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, then God's promise to do something guarantees that thing will take place. 
There is no way around it. There's no opportunity in which God will not do what he's saying right here. You can take this promise to the bank. You can cash that check. You can rely on that as you live your life. Now, what exactly is the promise? This is where it gets a little bit interesting. He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what exactly is the essence of this promise? Here, God is promising that Christ, the Messiah, David's Lord, will be an eternal Melchizedekian, if I can say that, priest. He will be an eternal priest, but he won't be a priest like Aaron and the Levites. He'll be a priest like Melchizedek. And we go, what? that's a really weird word. Like, I mean, we considered naming Elijah Melchizedek for, you know, about half a second. And then Jenna said, no, that's not a good idea. I went, oh, man. But where does this come from? Who is Melchizedek? Now, Melchizedek is kind of an enigmatic figure in the Bible. He's only mentioned three different places. This is one. Hebrews is one. And then in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 4. Turn there briefly in your Bible. Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 4 or 14 Genesis, this story starts off with how God creates the earth and how mankind rebels and falls away and how God judges the earth and Noah and then starts over with Noah again and then calls out this man, Abram, says, you're going to be a new nation, you're going to be a new people. And shortly after that episode in Genesis chapter 12, we run into Genesis 14, most of us read this chapter and go, why is this even in the Bible? Right? Then this flow of thought before God makes his covenant with Abraham in in chapter 15, we get confused by this story. Let me summarize a little bit of what's taking place. Abram has this family member who lives near these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Sodom and Gomorrah at war with these other kings, and the other kings come in and they wipe out these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they haul off Abram's relatives. So Abram Abram says, "I, I I don't think I can let that fly. I think I need to go and rescue my family members. So he takes this army of 318 men that he had in his camp, and he pursues them. God gives them victory over their enemies and they start bringing back all of the treasure and all of their family members. And on their way back, they run into this character of Melchizedek. Look at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, sorry, I don't, I don't know. If you know how to pronounce that, feel free, to, feel free to let me know afterward. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king, okay, so he's this king of Salem. Now that Salem is likely the predecessor to Jerusalem, so probably from that same city, brought out wine and bread. He was a priest of God Most High. Okay, so he's this priest and he's this king. Blessed be Abram, or sorry, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you or your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now that's intriguing. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to this king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest I should say, or you should say, I have made Abram rich. He didn't want to take all the the booty. It will take nothing of what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eskol and Mamre take their share. Okay, so so we get this this, this passing glance, this passing note to this character named Melchizedek. But what's fascinating about him is he is both the king of Salem and he is also a priest of the God Most High. He would have been a very rare combination in this day. People didn't do both these things. And this priest king is recognized and is honored by Abraham hundreds of years before Aaron and the Levitical priest came about. There's something present in him that predates even the priesthood and the kingly order that would come about in the nation of Israel. Now, what is the significance of all of that? 
We can't exhaust this idea, but Hebrews 5 through 8 is really an exposition of this reality. Now, I don't have time to explain everything in Hebrews 5 through 8 here this morning. So don't turn there with me, but you can look up some of these texts this afternoon. In Hebrews 5 through 8, the author of Hebrews is describing the implications of Christ coming as a Melchizedekian priest. As a priest not like Aaron and Levi, but a priest like Melchizedek, like this character in Genesis chapter 14. Let me just note some of the incredible realities that the author of Hebrews says we have because Christ is a Melchizedekian priest. First, Christ's eternal priesthood means we have access to the throne of grace. Chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews. It's like Dimitri prayed this morning. Because Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, we have access to the throne of grace. We can approach God in prayer directly through Jesus. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through a human mediator. We don't need a physical priest here on earth. We can pray directly to the Son because he is our mediator. He is this priest. Because of Christ's eternal priesthood, we have a representative behind the curtain, if you will. Chapter 6, verse 19. Rather than having to stand outside the Holy of Holies and have a high priest go in on our behalf to offer sacrifices on our behalf, the temple curtain has been torn and the Holy Spirit is available to us and we have access and a representative behind the curtain on our behalf. In chapter 7, verse 3, he says that we have an eternal priest. The priest that we have is not one who will die and who will be buried and will have to be replaced by another priest. Christ is this eternal priest forever. We have a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 19. We have a perfect priest who has never sinned, who has never fallen, who is fully human and yet without sin. Chapter 7, verse 28. And then in chapter 8, he says we have a superior covenant. We live under a better covenant. These are just a few of the incredible realities of what it means that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I'd encourage you to read those chapters in Hebrews this afternoon if you get time. His point is that Christ is a better, eternal priest. Where even in David's time, as he's writing these words, they had priests and they had kings. David highlights that God's eternal covenant is mediated by a perfect priest. By a perfect priest. Not like the sons of Aaron and the sons of Levi that he would deal with every day, but by a perfect priest. This is kind of the flip side of the coin of the fact that Christ is a perfect king. Christ is also a perfect priest. Not only is he the one who will come in judgment to rightly judge and pour out God's wrath on sin, but he came as an intermediary to offer up the sacrifice for our sin and to be the sacrifice for our sin. Christ's eternal priesthood is what he inaugurated when he first came to earth and he died for each and every one of our sins. When he said, you can't pay the penalty for your sin by sacrificing goats and oxen or by living good enough. You need a perfect sacrifice. So not only did this perfect king promise to dish out God's justice, but this perfect king said, that justice is actually going to fall on me. I'm going to be your priest. I'm going to be your representative. I'm going to stand in between you and a holy God, and he's going to see you through my righteousness. And I'm going to take your sin upon myself and be crushed by the Father. 
I mentioned to you, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, that you need to consider the fact that Christ will come in judgment one day. And that's bad news. But this second part, this reality of Christ as your priest is incredibly good news in light of that. It means that Christ did everything that needed to be done to satisfy the wrath of God. And he did it on your behalf. And he asks you to consider that reality. To say that access to the Father, forgiveness for your sins is available through me. Will you take me up on my offer? Or will you wait until I come again in righteous wrath? And if we place our faith and our trust in Christ, not in our works, not in our rituals, not in attending church, not in any other activity, but simply falling at the feet of this eternal priest, God has promised to put our sin on his shoulders and to give us his righteousness. Because Christ may come back in fury tomorrow. You can't wait to decide what to do with him today. And this offer stands this morning. Don't go away today without having considered that, without having placed your faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us that are believers that have placed our faith in Christ, consider that list of six spiritual blessings that we have from Hebrews. The fact that Christ is our priest means we have access to the throne of grace. Do you take God up on that offer? If you've placed your faith in Christ, you can go into the throne of grace and express your cares and your thoughts to God at any time. But because we have such freedom to approach God, more often than not, we totally forget to, don't we? We ignore the fact that we can share with God what we're thinking. We can take our requests to Him. That We can cast our anxieties on Him knowing He cares for us. Do you live in light of access to the throne of grace? that we have a representative behind the curtain advocating for us on God's behalf, that we have an eternal priest, that we have a better hope, that we have a perfect priest, that you live under a superior covenant, that you don't have to sacrifice goats and bulls and things over and over and over again because Christ's one sacrifice completed everything. It's so easy, even as a believer who's placed our faith in Christ, to live as if those realities are just thoughts. They're just spiritual things that are kind of neat to consider. But do these six realities impact the way you pray? Do they impact the way you worship? Do they impact the way you see God? Day in and day out. We should be overwhelmed by Christ, our perfect priest and mediator. We should be overwhelmed by the fact that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now from that oracle, from that reality, David turns back to his military imagery in verses 5 through 7 and speaks of God executing his judgment. This priest king will come and will execute God's judgment. And he says, or we see the Lord shatters, verses 5 through 7, look at this. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, he will drink from the book by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Again, he notes this right hand imagery and the significance of this right hand. What he's essentially saying is that opposing God's priest king is equal to opposing God. If you stand in opposition to Christ, you stand in opposition to God. 
And when he comes back, he will do three things. You probably picked up on them. First, he will shatter kings and chiefs. Verse 5, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Verse 6, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will subdue all the rebellious peoples of the earth, the nations that stand and shake their fist at God and say, you have no authority over us. Christ will come back and will shatter that power. He will execute judgment, verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Christ here is envisioned as rightly weighing the sins of the world and then judging that sin appropriately, functioning as judge, jury, and executioner and dishing out God's fury. And then this somewhat unanticipated statement that we find in verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That imagery we get a little confused by, the idea of kneeling down and, and drinking and then lifting up your head. This essentially just means there will be a celebration and an exultation of his victory. He will celebrate the conquest that God has given him. This perfect priest king is coming back to finish what he started. What he began at the first advent that we celebrate at Christmas and at Easter, Christ will come back to fully consummate and to finish at his second advent. And I can't help but note this imagery of judging and shattering enemies and all of this sounds very reminiscent of a section at the end of the Bible. Turn with me to the right in your Bible to the last book of the Bible in Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. As I read this section, I would encourage you to just consider if any of this sounds familiar from Psalm 110. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. We read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on, or written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the promise. That when Christ comes back, this is how he will come back. With the armies of heaven trailing behind him to judge the nations and to dish out God's wrath and fury. This is what's anticipated in Psalm 110. These incredible realities. Now I know that over the course of 40 minutes or maybe a little bit more at this point, I haven't exhausted the depth or breadth of the theology printed in the, uh, the, the, the theology present in this psalm. Or, or frankly, the theology present in any of the other psalms we've looked at over the course of the summer. But I do pray that we have gained a little bit of perspective on the incredible themes of priest and king present in the scriptures. This is what the view looks like from on top of the incline. After you've climbed all the way up the mountain and gone through all the work, there's this view waiting for you, looking down over the valley. And I think Psalm 10 is kind of like that. 
You do the work if you walk through the challenge and you see what it's talking about, you get an incredible perspective on the picture of Scripture. You see how Psalm 110 functions like a linchpin in the Bible? Here David reaches back to draw on these Old Testament stories and motifs, these ideas of prophets and king or priests and kings. But he doesn't see them as ultimate. He says they are simply a dim image of the reality that is to come. They are simply a precursor to who Christ is and what Christ will do. He prophesies that one is coming who is a greater priest and who is a perfect king. Here in Psalm 110, I think we see Christ magnified in his role as the divine king and the perfect priest. This is why Psalm 110 seemed like such an appropriate way to wrap up our summer. As we've seen all of these realities about Christ, but how this so perfectly pictures Christ as the anointed one, the Messiah. Our perfect priest and divine king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so overwhelmed by what we see here the incredible realities of who Christ is, what he's done for us, and what you have promised that he will do when he comes back. Father, if there are any that are here this morning that haven't dealt with the reality of who Christ is in their own lives, haven't made him Lord of their lives, and placed their faith in him, I pray that you would convict them and that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ this morning. For the rest of us who have already placed our faith in Christ, I pray that we wouldn't be able to live without considering the reality that Christ is coming back. That we wouldn't turn to the things this world hopes in and puts their trust in, that we wouldn't get consumed with the things we see right in front of us, but we would be reminded of the truth that Christ is coming back to right all the wrongs, to judge sin, to to call the nations to account for the way they've rebelled against him. I pray that we would live in light of that with both the challenge and the hope that one day it will all be righted. We celebrate that truth, and we worship you for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.